It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Hey, welcome back to the National Security Hour on the America Out Loud talk radio network on iHeartRadio, the voice of freedom, the out loud truth, where you come to hear military and intel experts. And that's right. That's all you're going to get five days a week, 7 p.m. East Coast time. That's Eastern Daylight Time. America Out Loud talk radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen to us on any media player, any web browser, anywhere in the world. We have the best in-class apps available on Apple, Android, Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can hear them on the podcast within a couple of days on the same apps. All right. So just within one or two days, the podcast will go up and you can go back on and look for the National Security Hour. Hit it and you'll see the show if you missed it. Okay, be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the videos so that we can help secure America's future. And you know what I say. We always mean that. Okay, and that's it. We're going right to the guest today. We have a special guest, special call in from Berlin, Germany, Rainier. And then on the second segment, we have another guest, a special guest, Jack Casio coming up. So stay tuned. Dr. Mike and Colonel Mike, your host today on the National Security Hour. Say hi, Rainer. How are you? Live. Nice, I'm crazy. Live. Thank you. There you go. He's live from Berlin. Great background historian. This is his 27th book we're going to discuss today. And uh, my, Dr. Mike and I are really, really excited to, to go over this because his new book is called In Defense of Capitalism. And for you here at home, uh, he just had an article in the Washington Examiner. So, Mike, if you'd like to introduce uh, Mr. Rainer Zalman, and then we'll go to it. How's that? Okay with me. Go ahead. You want to talk about Washington Examiner? Yeah, I thought the I thought the piece in the Washington Examiner was very very excellent, sir. I, I congratulate you on it. Thank you. It kind of makes me nostalgic for uh, a time when conservatism had its head turned or screwed on straight, or at least straighter, and and. Uh, is yeah, what I was wondering as I read it, it was is Reagan thought of at all in Germany, or is he thought of fondly, or as the clown they painted him to be? For me, he's the great hero, and uh, of course, not only what he did for the United States, but what he did for the whole world, and what he did Berlin. I remember when he was here in Berlin and said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," but he didn't tear it down. But without the support of Ronald Reagan. Um, Berlin wouldn't be united today. Germany wouldn't be uh, united. And so the bad thing is we have a lot of very left-leaning politicians here in Germany. And there was a proposal to have a statue with Ronald Reagan in Berlin to thank him for this. But they rejected it. We have no statue. And so as a result, the United States embassy here in Berlin had to put the statue in their own inside their own building because the left people here in Berlin didn't want to see a statue of Ronald Reagan. Isn't it? Isn't it crazy? It is crazy. But they're they're learning. Uh, they're learning the price of not following Mr. Reagan's ideas. I think, and I think that probably makes them all the matter that some sometime they may have to recant. 
Y yes, and and you know, I think of course you know, but a lot of uh, younger people, maybe even in the United States, don't know what happened in the Reagan times. Let me remind you about something: the tax rate when he um, came to office was seventy percent in the United States, and he reduced it to twenty eight percent. This yeah. was low straight uh, since 1925. This is the first thing. So this the next thing. In this way, he created 17 million new jobs, but real new jobs. Not Joe Biden. Sometimes he speaks about that he having allegedly created 13 million jobs, but these are only people who uh, um, who were. Um, in the pandemic, uh, who lost their jobs and uh, who came back? No, but with Ron Frank, these were 17 million real new jobs. And the last thing, what is important today, uh, when Ron Frank arrived at the White House, um, th there was a double-digit inflation rate. And at the end of his uh, first four years, it had uh, fallen to the half, to 6%, and then later to 4%. So he fought against inflation. He created a lot of new jobs. He reduced taxes and he won the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And was, you know, without him, there wouldn't be the breakdown of, of communism. So I for me, he's really the greatest president in the in the 20th century. I I think that's probably the probably true, sir. I think that's probably true. I, I also wanted to ask it in the United States. We seem to have, almost immediately after the wall fell, forgotten the difficulties we had in dealing with a communist country, the Soviet Union, and the horror it was as a, uh, in terms of humanity. And we turned immediately to stroking the forehead of, of uh, China and creating that disastrous uh, empire that is now uh, standing in front of us. Did, did the Germans, did, was there much of a mood in Germany after the wall fell to really embrace China right away? No, the, uh, but the, we had a lot of other problems. After the wall came down, a lot of people were aware what happened in, in communism and yes. how bad it was. But then year after year, people forgot about it and um of course, uh, I, I lived at this time. I was here in Berlin when the wall came down. But the younger people now who are in the 30s, uh, they have no um, uh, personal experience of this. So the only thing to know about this would be with their teachers at school. But the teachers, they don't tell them about this. They they tell them about the, the evils of capitalism, but they don't tell them about what socialism meant, what communism meant. And when we speak about China, let's give me one example. In China, from 1958 to 1961, happened the biggest socialist experiment in history of mankind. Mao Zedong called it the Great Leap Forward. What happened there? 45 million people died in China. 45 million people in only four years. So, and... And when I, I have lectures about these topics all over the world, last year I've been in 17 countries, this year 13 countries, and whether I speak in Asia, in Latin America, in the United States or in Europe, I ask my audience, have you heard at school from your teachers about this great leap forward in China where 45 million people died? 
And wherever I speak, and whether it's to 20 people, 200 or 2,000, only very few people raise their hand. They haven't heard about this. And this is a disaster. And this is the reason why I'm writing my books, because uh, young uh, um, uh, people, of course, they should learn it at school, students, but they don't learn it. Yeah, it's, well, we have exactly the same problem, sir. Even when I was, I worked for the CIA for about a, almost a quarter century. And when you talk to even senior policymakers at that time, they knew nothing about history, you know, since uh, after Vietnam, really. And I think these days in our schools here, especially in the public schools, there's very little uh, history of America taught or history of the world, unless it can be pictured as uh, supportive of um, the progressive ideas that, that seem now to be plaguing both of our countries. I, I, I want to recommend uh, something to you. Maybe you can send me another um, uh, another email after our interview. I have two films, and I will send you the links. The one film is Life Behind the Berlin Wall. Everyone can Google it. You can find it for free on the Internet, on YouTube, Life Behind the Berlin Wall. This is a film produced by me to, to explain people the difference between Eastern socialist Germany and capitalist West Germany. You know, I think it's very interesting to compare it because the same country, the same people, the same history, the same language, only two difficult, different economic systems. And now I want to ask you a question. What would you guess? How long did you have to wait to get a car in East Germany, in socialist East Germany in the 80s? What do you guess? Mike, you go first. Five years. Oh, no, no, no. More than that. Maybe 12 or 15. You're right. It was exactly between 12 and a half and 17 years that you had to wait for a car. And in the end, you got the worst car in the world, the so-called <laughs> Or another yeah, fact, only 16% in 1989 had a telephone in East Germany. In West Germany, it was 99%. And Even 27% in East Germany had not their own toilet, not their own bathroom. They had to share it with other people in their multifamily house. So these are facts that people don't know. And so you can see this in the in this film. And then we will, we will definitely put that up there. We will definitely do it. And that's a, that's a word to the young people listening to this broadcast or the families of the young people. Um, if you think socialism is great, wait till you get it. What, what was Margaret uh, Thatcher's famous saying? Socialism is good for everybody until you run out of money. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. This is, and maybe I can recommend you beside my book, uh, another film that is for free. It just finished, Poland from Socialism to Prosperity. I tell yes. the story, you know, Poland was one of the poorest countries in Europe, even in, in the 80s. One of the poorest countries, poorer than Ukraine, for example, poorer than Czech Republic, very, very poor country. And then they started in the 90s with free market reforms, with capitalism. And the result is now since three decades, Poland is Europe's growth champion. Standard of living increased. It's amazing what happened there in Poland. And these are two films made for young people, short films. The one has 20 minutes, the other 30 minutes to inform about the socialism, what teachers should tell them uh, at, at school. And, and in my book, 
in defense of capitalism, I have a whole chapter and I tell some other stories and maybe I can add only one thing because you, you mentioned Vietnam, the Vietnam War. I was in Vietnam, I was invited there and they call themselves socialists with a ruling communist party. But in fact, it's easier to find a Marxist at a university in Europe or the United States than in Vietnam. They know what yeah. it is. They call themselves socialists, but they are not. It's a very entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, first the, the war destroyed a lot, and then they have this crazy planned economy. This planned economy destroyed what was not destroyed by the war. But people in Vietnam were very smart. And at the end of the 80s, they started with economic free market reforms. They called it Doi Moi reforms. And in 1990, even Vietnam was the poorest country in the world, poorer than all African countries. And today it's amazing if you go there. And they mm -hmm. understood uh, that that entrepreneurship is so important. They invited me to give a lecture, a workshop at their university. The topic was, how can we improve the image of rich people in Vietnam? I was never invited to such a workshop in the United States or in Europe. Imagine that. Now, this is now uh, the the um, the vision of Vietnam or what the, the, the people believe in America about Vietnam is totally opposite of what's really happened. I, I, I know what's happening, Rainer, because I know some Vietnamese students that were in America here in university and their parents were very wealthy and they, they're very entrepreneurial and and they're into all kinds of one company had like seven companies on the one umbrella. And that was only in 15 years. Yes, and, and by the way, you should think maybe because of the war that there were some maybe hate or, or maybe stereotypes negative about the United States, but it's not. There no, are parts right. in, in, in Vietnam, 80% of people in Vietnam, they, they love Americans. And um, we, we had another poll. I commissioned a poll in Vietnam and I asked them, what is the best economic system in the world? And United States was number two for, for young for young people there. And mm -hmm. the last was China and uh, North Korea. So and and I met an, a young female entrepreneur. And what she told me, she said, my parents told me, think like American, act like American, clothe like American, eat like American, hear the same music, then you will be successful. That's what <laughs> she told me. And, you know, I admire these people because, of course, it would be everyone would understand after the war when they had some, you know, negative feelings and so. But they don't really? have. They look in the future. Yeah. You're absolutely right. If you look at the Vietnamese in America, in society, within one generation, look how entrepreneurial they are. And some of their children and grandchildren have built their companies into hundreds of million dollar companies. And they, sh if anybody, they should be the ones that are angry or have hate or want reparations that they were brought here on a boat. But you know what, Rainer? They're the most thankful people that came to this country after the war that they had the opportunity to come here. Absolutely. And I spoke about this topic with a Vietnamese ambassador here in Germany. And so I admire this because I think it's always better for you. Don't make excuses about the past. You know, this is what all these African countries do. Oh, yes. they're not colonialism and so we are we are victims and so and I hate this victim mentality. They hurt themselves in this way. And he laughed. And what he told me, here, Rainer, look, 
we in Vietnam, we were we were in war with half of the countries in the United States Security Council. So we were in war with China, we were in war with France, we were in war with Japan, we were in war with the United States. If we would like to hate all of this, we we would would have to hate everyone, but this doesn't make our country better. Mm-hmm. He was absolutely correct in saying that. You know, and look at look at the people who were born here. Whether they're born here first, second, third, fifth, seventh generation, whatever, they're still crying about things that never even happened to them, and they're looking for reparations. And who's going to give it to them? And for for what reason? It's crazy. This is what I think one of the worst things today with the so-called woke uh, ideology. What in reality is only a new label for for leftist ideology is this victim mentality. And uh, I wrote another book. It's about successful disabled people. And I spoke with an American. His name is Eric Weinmeier. And he was the first to climb the Mount Everest, and he's blind. And he didn't only climb the Mount Everest, but he climbed the seven summits, the seven highest mountains in seven continents. And he's blind. And he didn't feel as a victim or so. He was blind. He could have a lot of excuses why not to be successful. And this is the American spirit for me. This is mm-hmm. what made Americans so successful. The combination of two things. First, a good economic system, the best economic system, capitalism. And the second thing is that you feel as a master of your own life, not as a victim. These are the right. things that made America successful. And if you have problems now in America, and I lo- know there are a lot of problems, it's very easy to solve it. Go back to both of these principles. First, capitalism. And the next thing, see yourself as a master of your own life and not as a victim. That's very well said, sir. We certainly are dire need of that. But um, we're a long way from it at the moment. Maybe the next election will do something if it's not fixed. I have a question for for Raina. Hey, Raina, what what kind of cars were being at the time? What what kind of cars were being imported into East Germany for sale? What were they? Skoders, Seats? What were they? Well, they called it Trappy, and it was uh, you know it was like I think twenty five horsepowers. it was uh, and it was very bad for the environment it was not only very slow it was only very bad for the environment and as mentioned you had to wait between 12 and a half and 17 years for a car of course you could buy used one but even if you bought a used one 20 year old car you had to pay a higher price than for a new one. <laughs> this is because you know a, a planned economy does not work, and this is what people don't understand. And the problem now today is, you know, I wrote this article about Reaganomics against Bidenomics, and Bidenomics is for me only another word for a planned economy. Because yes, it is. Yes, it this is. is. This is what people don't understand. Let me come to this point. The real difference between a free market economy on the one hand and a planned economy on the other hand is very easy. In a free market economy, entrepreneurs decide what to produce. In the end, it's consumers' choice. We as consumers decide everything, who's successful and who's not. In a planned economy, politicians and government officials decide what is produced. And this is what happens now in Europe. This is what happens now in the United States. For example, they forbid combustion engines for a car. 
and they want to forbid a lot of a lot of other things. They want to tell you how you have to to warm or to heat your your houses and all this. And this means politicians want to decide what is produced or what you should buy and what not. And so they don't call it a planned economy because it has a bad, you know, meaning for a lot of people. But in reality, it's only what their names like Green New Deal and all this. These are only new brand, new marketing from very old idea that failed time and again. Yeah, they can't use the word planned economy. Now, by the way, when those crappy cars were being imported uh, from wherever, Russia or whatever, uh, in the meantime, at the time, Western Germany was making some of the best of the Mercedes-Benz product, some of the best of the BMW product, and the Audi product, because the older ones are much, much better. Maybe these new ones are technology advanced, but the old ones are just tremendous, right? Absolutely. And the difference is, if you wanted to buy a Mercedes or BMW or Audi, you, you could go to any car seller and take it away in the, in the same afternoon. <laughs> and and, and you, you could choose between... Also, if you would like to buy a car from the United States or from Japan, of course, you could buy everything and you could take it away the same evening. And in, in East Germany, you had to wait uh, this is 12 to 17 years. And this is, you know, it's, it's time and again, there were 24 experiments with a planned economy in the last century, 24 experiments. And they tried it in so many different ways. In China, in another way than in the Soviet Union, in North Korea, in another way than in Cuba, in in Venezuela, in another way than in East Germany or in Yugoslavia or Bulgaria, but they had all one in common. They failed without any exception. And the but the trick of the socialists is after it failed every experiment, they thought, oh no. This wasn't real socialism. Next time it will work. The, 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 last time, <laughs> the last time that it happened, I remember, was in Venezuela. Uh, you know, Venezuela was in 1970 one of the 20 richest countries yes. in the world. One of yes, the 20 yes. richest countries. Then they started with regulation, regulation, more regulation, especially labor market regulation, and the situation became worse. And then they did something very crazy. In 1998, they voted for socialist Hugo Chavez. And he, he and the, each electorals in Europe and in the United States, they were so enthusiastic. They called it the socialism in the 21st century because, of course, North Korea wouldn't be such a great example to, to inspire people. So, But Venezuela, they sound like a little bit Cuba and South America. So... What happened? The first years were not so bad because oil prices increased a lot. But then we started with all these crazy things, nationalization and so on. The result was in Venezuela, inflation rate was 1 million percent, 1 million percent. 10 percent of the population fled. The rest of the population lives there, hunger and poverty. And of course, they abolished democracy. They abolished freedom of press, freedom of speech. Things that happen always in socialism. And now, if you ask the same socialists about their socialism in the 21st century, they don't know. No, this is not an example, but this wasn't real socialism. And this is what they tell <laughs> us in 100 years, time and again. And so in my book, I tell you something more about my book. I have 10 chap chapters about all the stereotypes against capitalism. For example, 
capitalism is to blame for hunger and poverty. Absolutely crazy. Fact is that 200 years ago, before capitalism, 90% of the worldwide population lived in extreme poverty. 90%. Today, it's less than 9%. And wow. even in 1981, it was 43%. So this was due to capitalism. And um, so I have a lot of chapters and I didn't write the book to convince anti-capitalists because I think I know they will not read the book. They will not buy the book. They prefer to buy the new book from Bernie Sanders. I, I read this new book, absolutely crazy book. The title is Why <laughs> It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalists. This is Bernie Sanders' book. No, they will not read my book. I wrote the book for people like you and people who listen to us to support you with all the evidence, all the facts. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, it's, sir. It's without any theory. And, you know, I for this book, I used 360 scientific books and scientific papers. You find there 900 footnotes, but don't be afraid. It's, uh, it's written straightforward. It's easy to understand. If you can understand what I say now, even in spite of my... German accent, in spite of my strong German accent, it's much easier for you to, to understand the book. No, so, it's okay. Don't worry. Your accent's great. I call it the Hoshkin Voshkin. But I'll tell you something about Bernie <laughs> Sanders. Bernie Sanders is probably an extreme capitalist, or as as you would say, what would they, what did they call him in the Russian times? Um, not oligarch. There was something else. The, the commissars, whatever. Bernie Sanders always talks socialism and Marxism, but he has three homes. You know, he does very well. Uh, he's grifted off the uh, the public teat for his whole life. He's never really had a job except for he wrote for some rag piece. And I think it was even pornography. I'm not sure. But, you know, thank you very much for writing this. And we're happy that you came on to tell us about this so we could tell our listeners and listeners around the globe. By the way, uh, Raina, we have listeners all around the globe. So no matter where you are listening to this podcast with two mics, you could buy this book. In defense of capitalism, we'll have all the footnotes up. And we're really thankful for you to come on. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Yes. And, and please let me add something. It's published in 30 languages. In 30 languages. So wow. In your language, adapted to your country. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you invite me. Uh, please send me again an email that I can we send will, you the links sure. to both of those films. We want to keep in touch with you because people like you have to be out there and we have to get the message out there because there's so many kids that are not educated today when i say kids i'm talking up to 35 years old uh they don't know anything uh coming up now we'll have jack cashel and we're going to discuss with jack on tenable what does it mean so we're going to find out how can you improve your odds of staying healthy the answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. 
Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Loud. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. All right, thank you for joining us on the mission, the National Security Hour, Monday to Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Your host today, Dr. Michael Scheuer and Colonel Mike. Jack Cashel is be read in by Dr. Michael Scheuer, who has the notes right there. So Mike, why don't you introduce Jack? Jack is a, a, a known, well-known author, uh, published a dozen books of his own and has contributed as, the, as his uh, bio says, discreetly to 20 others. So he's got a, 
he's got a book shelf full of books uh, to which he has been either the author or the participant. His current book is a, it sounds like a fascinating book. It's called Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America, America's cities. And uh, the, uh, it's, uh, the, the reviews have said it's a poignant and startlingly honest look at white flight from the white perspective, a necessary and overdue corrective. That's uh, an endorsement from Brent Bozel, founder and president of the Media Research Center. All right, so there we go. That's that. You're going to want to get the book, but let's talk to Jack first. This sounds something that's like really uh, very important to read today. And we talk about it all the time, you know, between the white people. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like Mike says, if you want to be right, you're just white. I mean, and, and Mike, if you, had to, if you had to stick up for somebody, who would you stick up for, Michael Shoya? Well, yeah, what do you do? You know, if that's the if that's the, what they want, it's like Lincoln said, if you want to keep this uh, hierarchy according to race, I'm naturally going to want the white people on top because otherwise it, it, it we would be at the bottom. And it's, it's just common sense. All right. So, Jack, we'll let you come in. Go ahead. Start it up. You know, uh, Colonel, you probably know this as well as I do, but growing up, we didn't even think of ourselves as white. We thought right. of ourselves as Italian or Irish or Jewish or German or, or Polish. Right. And. Mm -hmm. What happened is in the like the 60s, the media decided to link all all the ethnic groups together and and not only link them together, but link them with the, the whites in the South. And then we were just all white people. And then we all became the enemy in this narrative. It was crazy when you think about it. Uh, people who had, you know, remembered clamoring off the boat were now all of a sudden the you know white ruling class. It's it was unfortunate and it was unnecessary, and the consequences of it uh, resonate to this day. Well, I think uh, if I had if I had to say something now, looking back years ago, Jack, uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. We all grew up as whatever, you know, because we were first, second, or third generation of whatever uh, nationality. But I think this was well prepared in advance, you know, because we see it now, the World Economic Forum, you know, all these groups that are pitting black against white, you know, what they're doing to Europe and what they're doing to the, the race and the nationality in Europe by flooding them with uh, Africans and sub-Saharan Africans, which who, who have nothing in common with the people on, on the, uh, the continent there. But again, uh, some of those people are suffering such as France, because, you know, they colonized all these countries for too long. Right. right? And, they, and they gave them some crumbs and they pampered them. Right. And uh, they invited, you know, over the years since, I guess, the end of the French Algerian War, they invited these people in constantly and they built uh, like these uh, North African ghettos, let's say. You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, eventually it's like anything else when 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 the economy is tight. Right. And uh, you get flashpoints. You remember growing up back in Jersey, back in the day, we used to have a couple of blackouts in New York, remember? And then right. all of a sudden, all these stores would be looted, uh, appliance stores during a grid you know, blackout. Um, and then they would burn down, let's say, some of the uh, supermarkets and stores like they did in the 60s in D.C., Right. Um, and those were what they were. They had those called those were called race riots then. Right. Definitely. So we didn't have race riots. We had blackouts. But then they would loot and then they'd get pissed off because 
the owners of these these uh, appliance stores and shops said, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to rebuild. I'm going to collect the insurance, go away. Yeah. I'm not going to put gates on my doors and gates on my shops because if you want to burn me out, I'm not coming back." And then later on, everybody cries. Well, you know, it's a food desert. It's a yeah. uh, it's whatever desert, right? That's a yeah. new word, right? It's a new new desert. vocabulary. Everything's a desert now, right, Jack? <laughs> it is. A, you know, I, you know. I just came back from France, and I spent I spent a lot of time there. Lived there for a while, and we have a huge advantage over them, and that is that we're not taking advantage of it. We have it, and that is the United States was formed around an idea, and an idea that anyone could participate in if they chose to play by the rule, the general rules of the country, which is. Yeah, this is a country of individuals who are self-sufficient, who take care of themselves and their families, and who uh, work towards a common good, you know, individually, not collectively. And uh, and that's, you know, when we're talking about our own roots, being Italian or Irish or Polish or German, we were moving in that direction. Uh, everyone, you know, we all took our lumps when we first got here. Our families did, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, sure, I'm, I'm sure the, the British were beating up the Dutch 400 years ago in New York City. And then the, the the Dutch beat up the Germans and the Germans beat up the Scott-Irish. And for a generation, it's rough. But growing up as a kid in Newark, which was became the, the sort of the poster child for dysfunction, um, we got along. And the, my neighborhood friends and whom I spoke to for this book described our early neighborhood as idyllic. Mm-hmm. Uh, on my block alone, for instance, and it was a one block long stretch in a neighborhood called Roseville, Myrtle Avenue. I got a hold of the 1950 census, uh, which was uh, just came out. They release them every 72 years. They wait 72 years to release them, I should say. I don't know why. It's like Kennedy's brain or something. But the um, And on my block, there were uh, immigrants from 14 different countries, including wow. like, uh, Turkey and uh, Finland, you know. And then there were, but here was what's the critical variable was this. There were 85 households on this one block, 363 people. One street, one one way street, one block long. Uh, of the eighty-five households, eighty-three had a married father head of household. Oh yeah, that's a big thing back then. That's for sure. And that is the critical variable now in the breakdown in uh, America's inner cities. Because I, if I went to that block today, I'd be surprised if there were three married fathers in in uh, out of eighty-five. Uh, and the whether it was conscious or not, uh, the federal government undermined uh, all families, particularly the black families. And with the, you know, when that reaches a critical mass, when fatherless needs reaches a critical mass, these kids are easily radicalized. They're taught to hate America. They're taught to hate white people. And they're taught to riot at the first, uh, you know, opportunity, whether it's a blackout or the death of some felon doing something bad. Uh, and that's where we are today. We haven't made any progress in 60 years, which is unfortunate. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here. Jack just talked about the block. For you guys that are not from New York and New Jersey, that means the street, the street right. we lived on, we used to call it the block. The the steps going up to the house, were called, what was it called? A stoop, right, Jack? Stoop. Right. That's, that's the one Dutch contribution to the English language. <laughs> <laughs> and and in New York, we called it stoop ball. You probably never played stoop ball, but that's when you took a pink kind of a rubber ball and you hit the the step and you had to hit it right at the corner of the stoop. Right and the then point. it would fly back. We, <laughs> called the it, point. we called it off the stoop. 
you know? Yeah. It sounds like a way to rub out some, the idiot on the block, but no, it was awful. <laughs> and these were good, I mean, this was real America. I tell people, you know, young people today, um, you know, if you grew up in the 50s, you missed America. You, what you see on TV, and if they produce it today, it's going to be crap anyway, because it's right. going to be all fake. But if you saw the old black and whites, which you saw, we weren't we weren't exactly Ozzy and Harriet and all that <laughs> stuff. But, you know, because you heard screams, you smell food in the air. If you went into a building, you know, a, a, a house where it had three, four floors, you could get any kind of aroma from Irish to German to Polish to Italian. And in our case, where we live, we would uh, trade houses during the week. So if your mother was making something you didn't want to eat, you go to your friend's house and eat over there and they'd be eating at your house. You'd be switching back and forth for dinners like that. You know, it was a very open door policy for dinner with kids. You know, it was a it was a great time. It was a really great time. And, you know, for guys in New York going to Jersey, we had to go over the bridge. Oh, gosh, we got to go over the bridge to go to Jersey. Remember that? (laughs) Well, we uh, I I would say as a, a bit of a corrective. The Irish had the good sense to give up their cuisine or what passed for their cuisine. <laughs> yeah. As soon as they ran into Italian food, you know. And Well, and, you know, it was great, Jack. Yeah. Remember, there was a lot of intermarriage then. And oh, you remember, what? if you had an Italian mother and uh, somewhere along the line, an, an Irish person got into the family, they'd, they'd get the daughter to learn how to cook Italian food. Oh, exactly. Right away. <laughs> I have, I mean, I have cousins who are half Irish and half Italian. We all do probably, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. the, um, and in this generation, certainly. But, you know, when I was growing up and you two guys, I'm sure every one of us had a living relative who was born in another country. Uh, Yes. Our parents are certainly our grandparents. And, uh, but we were all aimed at this in the same direction that we all believed in America. We all believed that we were going to rise above our circumstances. And, you know, when I talked to, I must interview 50 people for this book uh, on my book on Tenable. And every one of them made a class leap in their lifetime from living in some crappy little apartment, you know, with seven brothers and sisters to having a home of their own, two cars and a garage, et cetera. That's not to say they're happier, but they're materialistic materially. They're better off. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I think that, you know, the period we're talking about of government growth and intervention, it always seems to me that they had four objectives in in wanting to destroy the unity or the neighborliness of the American people. The first one was to break Christianity, yeah. then to break the family and break the neighborhood. Bring in the unassimilable, and then finally break self-reliance. And I, I think they've been successful in every way. Uh, you know, we lived on a block just like you were talking about. We had Serbians and we had Irish and uh, Hungarians, Germans, everybody. And the only people that uh, that you were wary of were the Croatians and the Serbians because they had a at the end of the block they had a. Uh, 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 Croatian Hall, they called it, and it was for weddings and for uh, nightly uh, uh, meetings and uh, beer and that kind of thing. But about every Saturday night, they had a little brawl between Croatians and Serbians. So <laughs> it wasn't so much they were disliked. They were a little uh, frightening to some people, I think. I think they probably carried over their old world feuds. You know, uh, That's exactly that's exactly right. 
uh, and you. now it's it's there's no African that's going to come here uh, and, and and really ever be assimilated because there's it comes from a tribal. We don't come from a tribal area. Well, yes, and no. unless you want to regarding Christianity as a tribe, I guess that's that could be. Now, what was tribal for us, uh, Mike, was in, for instance, in 1960, I was 12 years old, but um, I was the, the most rabid pro-Kennedy person uh, in America. You know, I, I still remember all the, the primaries, everything. And uh, I was a paper boy and I consumed my product. But we were tribal. Uh, the Irish Catholics voted like 100 percent for uh, John Kennedy, very close. Oh, 110 percent. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> right. And North is about 140 percent. North alone carried put put New Jersey over. He only won New Jersey by one percent. And my neighborhood was about 20 percent of that one percent. But no, I you know, it's uh, I think that it, that the Africans and West Indians can are assimilating. The problem is that we have uh, we've taken a big chunk of our community, and this happened started in the '60s, really, and it's unfortunate because at that point blacks were moving closer to becoming just another ethnic group. They were assimilating mm -hmm. into northern societies, and then when the families started collapsing, like you say, under governmental pressure, and once the families start collapsing, the communities start collapsing, then the radicals came in, and I talk about this in Untenable because in Newark I could trace them; I knew who they were. And they included white radicals like uh, Tom Hayden, who was Jane Fonda's husband and her wife, whichever. And, uh, you know, North Vietnamese uh, uh, visitor and friend and whatnot. And they were telling young black kids, disaffected young black kids, hey, this is in your country. Uh, you don't belong. You don't have any reason to respect these people. Take what you want. Get what you want. When that first blackout comes, hit the liquor stores. They were specifically giving them that message. So in Newark, it all combusted in 67 uh, with the, our riots, which was the first major riot in the Northeast where like 26 people were killed. And as Todd Hayden says in his book, only one fireman and only one cop. Well, tell that to the parent, the families of the one fireman and one cop who were killed as though the word only was somehow consoled them. Yeah. But that's, that's what made Newark untenable. And uh, it was a series of events that, that drove people out it wasn't racism. It was just common sense. Blacks left, Asians left, Hispanics left, uh, because it became uh, untenable. It simply became not a place where you could raise a family and, and with confidence and security. Well, I think that I certainly think that's right, and I think it reminds me that I left one one thing out was to break the educational system, mm -hmm. because now the you just mentioned common sense, and there is no common sense. Yeah. There is uh, it, it, it's it's almost unbelievable what people did when when Hillary said uh, a long time ago now that uh, uh, our greatest strength is diversity. I thought, well, that ass is going to be done. How can you be make yourself weaker by being diverse and yet make yourself stronger? It it doesn't work. And and now we have this uh, companies have a gauge for how diverse they are, and we had that some idiot lieutenant general in the Congress yesterday saying that diversity is the key to building a fighting army. And, and that's an expert. They use that in China. They say tons of Well, you know, it's, um, you remember the World War II movies. Uh, they were all, they all had the diverse bomber crew. You know what I mean? There was yes. The cabbie from Brooklyn and it was the hayseed from Kentucky and, 
You know, there was the uh, Polish. Oh, somebody guy. called Sparks on the radio. Right. Yeah. But what they, well, what they weren't doing is they weren't forcing them into that thing by because they were this, that, or the other thing. And what diversity has become is a, a coerced way to uh, achieve an equity that nature would never achieve. For instance, let me just give you an example of what happened in Newark is, uh, and why it became untenable for the for Jews. Every ethnic group responded differently to the pressures they were under. Uh, Jews in Newark and and every other city that I could that I understood were the most welcoming uh, to black newcomers from the south, and uh, they would have committees and welcoming committees and whatnot. The problem for Jews was a they had extremely high standards for the students, and b uh, they depended entirely on public schools. To your point about schools, so when schools began to, uh, you know, all you needed is one wayward kid in a classroom to screw everything up. So although Jews were the most welcoming, uh, and they had, a, you know, created a, a, you know, very success, successful economy in Newark and a very success, successful academic high school, Weekwake, Philip Roth's alma mater, uh, they were the most welcoming and the first to leave. They emptied those neighborhoods almost immediately because they couldn't send their kids to public schools. Meanwhile, on our end of town, uh, the Irish and Italians had Catholic schools, so we hung on. The Italians were particularly fierce in defending their, their turf, and so they were criticized for staying, just as the Jews were criticized for leaving. So when the elite are calling the shots and the, the media democratic complex is deciding who's the villains, well, they're not going to admit that their program screwed up a city. What they're going to do is blame, essentially blame the victims, the Jews, mm -hmm. the, Italians, the Irish, the Germans, uh, everyone, even the blacks who were, you know, the uh, upwardly mobile blacks who were left behind as well. Well, this goes back, Jack. Michael remember this, too. Um, the great Daniel Moynihan, Patrick Moynihan, remember him back in the 60s, right? Right. Senator Moynihan from New York, when he he did the research about the Negro family. Right. And where it would, where it would wind up. And the the proof is in the pudding now. I mean, he, what he said, basically, it, it, it was a cheap shot. He just said, hey, you just keep them on welfare and this is what it's going to be. And then you're going to have the one one parent family. Now, you remember growing up in the 50s and the 60s, Mike. I don't know what it was like upstate in Buffalo. But I could tell you what it was like in, in New York City. And, Jack, you could tell us what it was Jersey. But if a parent got divorced in the white family, it was a big secret. You didn't even know, like, somebody left or whatever. And the community would gather around and help the person that was raising the children, okay? Right. right. Uh, and it was it was like a kind of a disgrace or whatever, wh whatever the case was. But the community would surround the parent that stayed with the family. The church would be involved, the whole nine yards, Okay. Uh, today, it's like, you know, the, the Democrats just destroyed families from that point on. It was like, look, you don't have to work. Here's some money. Here's some welfare. Now, you're going to hear people say, well, you know, there are people in need. I'll tell you what, if you're in need and you're on snap cards and you got tattoos from head to toe, you're not in need. Yeah, if you right. got Adidas and, and you got Adidas and Nikes. No, in our day, we got hand-me-down sneakers. You wore your brother's clothes and that was it. You know what I mean? That was the next case. Right. So. You remember the big families, Jack, Irish, Italian. Right. It was a hand-me-down program. Your mother wasn't going to buy you a jacket if the other one fit, you know? No, so, no. Uh, that is, that, yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah, but to your point about the uh, Moynihan report, which I quote extensively in, uh, in uh, Untenable in my book, 
because it was so uh, pressing. It was, it was so prophetic. What Moynihan writes, and he later becomes a uh, Democratic senator from New York, one of the last sane Democrats to uh, appear in recent years. And he, he said at that point, the uh, black out of wedlock rate was 25%. Uh, and he said, here's what's going to happen with the, uh, with the roadblocks to black progress being removed uh, legally with illegal restrictions coming down. Blacks are going to expect equity. They're going to expect to perform at the relatively same level as other ethnic groups. He said it's not going to happen. He said families without fathers cannot compete with families with fathers. And to your point as well, and all of the ethnic families uh, in at that time, Irish, Italian, Jewish, the rate of family formation was extremely high. Divorce was almost unheard of. And, mm-hmm. and you're right, families rallied around like widows or you know people who'd been abandoned or whatever, so that you you had never had that sense of fatherlessness, and he said the what happens as we go forward, uh, African Americans are never going to achieve equity in America as long as we ignore uh, the family breakdown that's taking place and it's being encouraged by our own government. Well, the it's same been, year, yeah. it's being engineered by it. That's exactly right. right. The same year he wrote that, 1965 is the same year Lyndon Johnson launched the Great Society. And so mm-hmm. one of those had to go. So the deep six, the uh, the Moynihan report, and from that day forward, no one dared say what Moynihan said until, curiously, in 2008, Barack Obama, uh, he's running for president now. He's got the primary behind him. It's Father's Day. And he's speaking to a church in Chicago. And he says to them, you know, we, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to admit that the greatest problem in the black community today is the absence of fathers in the home. Too many men are acting like boys and abandoning their families. Right. And then he goes on to cite the statistics, you know, uh, boys from fatherless homes are five times more likely to drop out of school, 10 times more likely to commit crime, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. And it was the best speech of his career. But he only made it once because two but weeks I, later, on a hot I'll say this. I'll say this. He probably said under his breath, Yeah. Now I can transform America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what here's what Jesse Jackson said, though. He said, Barack Obama, he'd talking down to them black people. He said this on a hot mic in a Fox studio. He knew. <laughs> and he said, I want to, and then he makes a slicing motion with his hand when he says it. I want to cut his nuts out, right? Mm-hmm. That was Jesse lot. Jackson was in the business. That's you know, right. Jesse, listen, it's <laughs> the race card business, and Jesse's like a king of that crap, you know? I mean, I know people that were in the civil rights movement. We had him on shows early on years ago. Who, a really great man, Bob Woodward, who's got the Woodward Center in D.C. They left the, yeah, he's a great man. They left, the, they left the movement because they seen it was a money, it was a money grab. Right. You know, as they say, the as Eric Hoffer once said, he goes, all good choices become, become a business. You know? Yeah. No, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, and Woodward's a great guy. He's done some good stuff. Excellent. Excellent place. Now let's go back to the black family for a minute. I spoke to Mike about this once before. When I was a, a young kid growing up in New York, black families, I would say, were stylish. 
Sunday, they would have a Pentecostal. We I used to call them Hallelujah churches, like a Pentecostal or something like that. You know, where they'd sing really loud gospel music. Right, right. And we had one. We had one, a small one that was there for many, many years, in in the Italian community. You know, in the middle of it, and you'd have these beautiful shiny Pontiacs and Buicks and. Man, I mean, these women were dressed to the nines and men had hats and the kids had bonnets and the kids had pockets. I mean, it was really, really, really good looking. Okay, yeah. it, was, oh, sure. yeah. it was high line, high line. These were working people, okay? But yeah. they looked like they were high line people and they would get out of the cars. And we were told as kids, never to bother these people. Don't sit on their cars. Don't do nothing. Because it, to us, we didn't know what it was. We went to a Catholic church, right? right. We didn't have that kind of, singing or whatever so you know we're inquisitive we're young kids right uh, and we were told by you know certain people in, in the community you don't touch these people you don't say a word you just wave that's it you know in other words don't harass anybody don't bother them because sure. you know young kids are ball breakers let's face right. it right? right i want to thank my guest rainier and i want to thank jack today for coming on the national security hour with dr mike and colonel mike thank you for joining us on the mission the national security hour is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. And you know we mean that. With liberty and justice for all, tune in and we'll see you next week. Don't forget, 7 p.m., Monday to Friday, the National Security Hour.